the big fourth of July. All right, we're on Panic Attack with Big John, joined by my original tag team partner, Doc, from The Break Wall. How's it going, buddy? Hey, can you hear me all right? I hear you loud and clear. The phone is not roaming, <laughs> so we're good. That's awesome, brother. Uh, we got a lot going on uh, in the world today. We've got Amen. this um, uh, case here, two two big cases uh, dealing with you know guns and abortion. Yeah, well, we had two big wins for the Constitution, I think, and a, really possibly a third one that's a little overshadowed. The uh, kneeling at the 50-yard line, uh, the Supreme Court ordered or decided prayer on public property is legal as long as it's not forced. Uh, and then they struck down the EPA, basically. Uh <laughs> And a win for the coal and gas industry, I think. But uh, let's start with uh, the overturn of Roe v. Wade and truth versus misconceptions, I guess, and our thoughts and feelings. Uh, obviously, I think we've both wanted to see this overturned for as long as I can remember. And now it's there. It's no longer, uh, quote unquote, the law, even though the Supreme Court technically does not make laws, something people don't understand. But what were your initial feelings when you, you heard that? I mean, did you could you believe this? Well, at this point, yeah, um, the, the makeup of the court is uh, such where. um it, I would have been shocked had the court not made the decision that they did. And when, you know, you have a uh, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito and Neil Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett, very strong on this issue. Um, it was just a matter of who, who of Kavanaugh and Roberts uh, can you get? And, and frankly, they got the the court got both of those. I mean, I've heard people say this was a five four decision. I've heard people say this was a six three decision. I've heard people say this was a five three and one decision. And we can talk about all of that, but the bottom line at the end of the day, there were six justices on the Supreme Court that said what uh, Mississippi did. And passing that law was constitutional. Yeah, I think that's what's being overlooked. Uh, can you explain that Mississippi law? Yeah, let me try to bring um, let me bring this up as as easily explained as I can. Um, you know. I, 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 I'm prepared to, I mean, th there's a lot of amici brief or uh, curie briefs. There's just a, a ton of stuff with this case. If you go online, it, here's the deal. 
if you're listening to the podcast, you should go online and look at this stuff for yourself. Okay. Yeah. Don't don't listen to the news media and sure as hell don't listen to a couple of guys, uh, John, uh, online. Uh, look up Dobbs v. Jackson for yourself. Go to SCOTUS. Go to Oye. Go to a, the Supreme Court site itself. Uh, SCOTUS blog is also out there. Uh, you you can read all of these documents for yourself and the media and blogosphere coverage of all of this. I mean, there 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 should be no reason why people don't understand what this is what this is actually about, but. Generally, as I understand it, uh, Mississippi passed a, I guess, a version of the heartbeat bill. Um, And as we continue this conversation, I'll shift online to actually read what specifically the law is. But it was it was a it was a tightened down version of the heartbeat bill. Uh, I think it may have even been like six weeks or 10 weeks or something like that. and it's important to understand why that's important, because the original Roe decision 50 years ago talked about um, a right to privacy, but more importantly, a uh, the right to a medical procedure that is protected under a right of privacy that isn't explicitly listed in the Constitution, but is implied that it's there. So, you know, for those of us that have been in the pro-life movement, there's always been, you know, a couple of fundamental layers. One, human life is sacred and should be protected. Then there's the real, the, the real politique position, which is how far should the government go? How far should the courts go? in recognizing that sanctity of life. Clearly, in Roe, they made it up as they went along. Uh, Very few people have read the entire decision from cover to cover, myself included. I've read most of it. Uh, It reads like legislative text, and that's exactly what it was. And so it wasn't really grounded in a lot of judicial you know, canons, it it was, this is what we'd like, and here's how we're going to set this up. And I think overall, um, they'll say that it it was a seven to two decision, but when you break it down, uh, no particular provision of the decision got any more than four votes from the justices 50 years ago. Right. And so you've got that out there. Then all of a sudden the nineties come around and the Republicans had five or six members on the court. And this case from Pennsylvania came down called Casey. And many people thought that here's our chance to finally overturn Roe. We've got, you know, five justices on here appointed by Republicans who pledged support for this cause. And what happened was, the court dismissed Roe without overturning its precedent and inserted a, uh, and I'm not a constitutional lawyer or an attorney, so I'm doing the best I can here. It inserted a new theory of the case, which is 
there may not be a right to privacy. There may not be all these things that Roe talked about, but it is precedent. It should be upheld. And I don't remember the questions before the court specifically in Casey, but what the court decided was we're now going to uh, institute a undue burden test. So instead of a trimester test, it was, are these state laws that are passed an undue burden on a woman's right to, uh, to get an abortion? And that's what you saw several years ago in the Texas case that the courts overturned that said that the, that the Texas case was an undue burden. It upheld Casey. Uh, in saying that there was too much restriction on a woman's right to get an abortion. And that undue burden test, and again, I'm not an expert here, but it was all about the kinds of laws that were passed at, that regulated procedures at certain points of time in the, pre- in the pregnancy and the availability of the procedure for women in a given area because of the law. So you ha- you couldn't restrict access at key points during the pregnancy. So that was kind of what we've been living under in the last 30 years. And so what has happened is states have begun to pass very, you know, restrictive laws that either challenged the idea of Roe outright or went to the undue burden test established by the court in Casey. And Ohio passed a heartbeat bill. Arkansas passed a heartbeat bill. Texas passed a regulation bill. Uh, some of these were weighed in on by the court. Others were put on hold. But Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization held that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood in uh, uh, Pennsylvania v. Casey are overruled. And the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. The law in Mississippi that Justice Chief Justice Roberts was willing to uphold to make it a six to three decision was one that regulated um, the, uh, the access to abortion in such a way that said after a certain period of time, very early in the pregnancy, heartbeat, brain waves, whatever it was, is very early. That was okay. But Robert said we cannot overturn the principle of Roe uh, because it was established precedent. Well, five other justices said, you know, pound sand, this thing is wrong. And what's key here is they're not saying, and some pro-life people would have favored going the extra mile to say that under, let's say, the 14th Amendment, human life is sacrosanct, that any abortion restriction, any abortion law in the country is illegal because of the 14th Amendment's guarantee of, you know, right to personhood. The court didn't go that far. What the court said was it is, as I mentioned, uh, the right to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives at the state level. So abortion is not illegal in this country. 
in many states, you will still be able to, specifically liberal states, procure this decision unencumbered at different stages, but in a large majority of states, you're not gonna, you're not going to be, and and that is the decision that the court made because the Constitution does not specifically authorize a right to abortion. And they make that case based off of the fact that, you know, the decision 50 years ago was wrong. uh, And that the fact that you look at, you look at things as they were when they were made and nobody in the country, no state, no, no national government had laws that recognized this right. And so the question then is, how do you get a federal federal right? I mean, it's clear the court says you can have individual state rights, but how could you get a federal right? And, and the answer to that question is either pass a constitutional amendment or change the makeup of the Supreme Court. So there's an answer, long answer, John, to your question of what is Dobbs? It's a, a very tightly wound a piece of legislation that was passed in Mississippi that said you couldn't get an abortion after a period of time very early in the pregnancy. But more than that, it opened up the door for the court to finally, after 50 years, say this nonsense of Roe and Casey is over. We have no business messing in this. And it is up to the states to decide, come what may. Yeah, and it's a win for, you know, the rights of the state uh, over the rights of the federal government. And I think we'll see more of that from this Supreme Court. And it's kind of funny, you know, the Democrats are losing their shit that, you know, oh, Republicans have been planning this for 30 years. And, uh, you know, th- this has been in the making and they finally got what they wanted. Well, yeah, the Democrats slowly plan a lot of uh things as well. The liberals have planned a lot of things out from the 1960s and slowly worked them into our laws, you know, more and more uh, centralized health care. And then they almost finally got it with Obamacare, but not quite. Uh, And that was a step towards socialized medicine. So they got a a taste of their own, (laughs) their own medicine in a way where, yeah, I know George W. Bush thought that uh, John Roberts was going to be more conservative and uh, overturn Roe v. Wade. And uh, George H.W. Bush knew that Clarence Thomas was a conservative. And Trump, of course, he said outright he would appoint pro-life justices. So, Good, good one for the Republicans for once, you know, uh, if this well, was a long term plan. Uh, well, let's get let's get back to your original question for a second here of what the law was in Mississippi that started all this, because I have yeah. in front of me the opinion from the court uh, okay. that, that, get, that gets into this. So it's a little bit of a paragraph here that sets it up that your listeners should hear. So the case was originally argued um, on December 1st, 2021 
its origins go back at least a year or more before that and was of course decided on June 24th, 2022, uh, a little addendum there leaked in, uh, <laughs> what was it? Uh, May or something of 2022. Uh, and that needs to be addressed also, but no, we need to talk about that. So what we're talking about here, Dobbs state health officer of Mississippi department of health and others versus the Jackson's women health organization, Dobbs v. Jackson. And as the court styles this in their syllabi, Mississippi's Gestational Age Act provides that, quote, except in a medical emergency or in the case of a severe fetal abnormality, a person shall not intentionally or knowingly perform or induce an abortion of an unborn human being if the probable gestational age of the unborn human being has been determined to be greater than 15 weeks. This according to Mississippi Code. So that is what the law is. This was a 15-week, um, it, it wasn't necessarily grounded in a particular developmental thing uh, of a heart or a brain or whatever. It just said 15 weeks is it. You, you cannot induce an abortion of an unborn human being if the gestational age of the unborn human being has been determined to be greater than 15 weeks. Now, respondents, the people that challenged this law in Mississippi, the Jackson Women's Health Organization or a Planned Parenthood type situation, uh, it's an abortion clinic. And one of its doctors challenged the act in federal district court, alleging that it violated the court's precedents established establishing a constitutional right to abortion, in particular Roe v. Wade, and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. The district court granted summary judgment in favor of the response, meaning Planned Parenthood, the abortion clinic, and permanently enjoined enforcement of the act, reasoning that Mississippi's 15-week restriction on abortion violates the Supreme Court's cases forbidding states to ban abortion pre-viability. The Fifth Circuit affirmed that ruling. So the state passes the law, the district court and the Fifth Circuit both said that the law is no good. But the Supreme Court, quote, before this court, petitioners defend the act on the grounds that Roe and Casey were wrongly decided and that the act is unconstitutional, that the act, meaning the Mississippi law, is constitutional because it satisfies rational basis review. So then the court held the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. And then from there, in a 200-page opinion that includes the majority, concurring opinions, and the dissenting opinion, the court then outlines why they are making, why, how and why they are answering this question. And I think the court got it right. Um, you know, viability is uh, earlier and earlier in pregnancy now than it, it has been in the past. We understand more about life 
than we did in the past. Uh, you know, when Roe was uh, upheld, and I understand they were looking at, you know, a woman's right to privacy and access to an abortion. But right now, we know right after conception, you know, that baby has its own unique DNA. It's already determined how, let's say, how tall the baby's going to be, how, uh, well, what the eye color, the hair color, how many hairs you're going to have. All that happens at the, well, not the moment maybe, but in conception, that unique DNA. So you have a, a separate life that's being sustained by the mother's body, yes, but it comes down to a matter of personal responsibility if we're talking a moral place. Uh, if we're talking about morality, then it's, person, it's personal choice. If you're choosing to have unprotected sex, choosing not to use a birth control pill or a condom, you have to know that there could be consequences to this. Um, and you have to take that responsibility in life. Uh, and the, the court hit at 100. I think Clarence Thomas hit the nail on the head in his opinion. And uh, the leak of Sam Alito's opinion uh, I think was set there to try and sway the judges, of course, with intimidation, if we can change gears a little bit here. And uh, finding the leaker, and do you, obviously they get punished, hopefully, and the justice they work for, I think, should get punished too. Have you heard any more about this leaker? Because I haven't heard any updates on this well let, let's i definitely want to get into that because i have some you know theories uh about it or at least some questions about it um but i want to get back to what you were just talking about a lot of what you were saying here i would agree with but in terms of the court and what was before the court quoting from their syllabus the critical question is whether the Constitution properly understood confers a right to obtain an abortion. Casey's, exactly. Casey's controlling opinion skipped over that question and reaffirmed Roe solely on the basis of stare decisis, meaning it has been established. This is what I referred to generally in our earlier uh, segment. A proper application of stare decisis, however, requires an assessment of the strength of the grounds on which Roe was based. The court therefore turns to the question that Casey plurality did not consider, which is the original grounds that Roe was decided on. If you attack that and destroy that, then Casey automatically goes away. And that's what happened in this decision. So the, the, the argument of, is this a human being? Is it not a human being? really is you know it's part of this discussion but to me the takeaway from this is who decides not what are we deciding but who decides and that's very important uh, 
on a lot of these cases that go to the Supreme Court because should nine, you know, attorneys in black robes decide things for a vast and complicated country of such an importance, especially when the Constitution itself, which is the document that they're supposed to be interpreting and the laws that Congress passes that are supposedly, you know, <laughs> okay underneath that constraint. Um, you know, what does all that mean with that? And so for those reasons, I think alone, the court made the right decision. And so in our, in our individual states, we are going to get into a lot of what you've talked about. You know, this is a human being. This is a, a, a life at all stages, and therefore we should protect it. And so what we'll see in the coming months and years outside of, you know, calls of, uh, you know, ridiculous claims and political posturing from the left about an illegitimate Supreme Court will actually be some intellectual arguments of, of, of worth. And that is, what do the state constitutions say? Because that's now where the question will be. So we need to turn our attention as, you know, if you're a part of the pro-life movement or the pro-choice movement into who are the judges that you're voting for that will potentially be in a position to determine those questions based on what's in the state constitutions. And that, and that actually provides uh, the relief for this question and for this debate that you're talking about. In addition to what the legislatures may decide or the executive may decide through their own actions. So it really is now back to the level in our republic where these very important and personal decisions were always designated to be made uh, by our founding fathers, absent some very fundamental uh, decisions about certain issues that are specifically outlined in the Constitution. And again, I will say that if you are pro-life or you're pro-choice, if you want to have this national constitution of ours address this issue, there are multiple ways you can get that done, not just at the state level, but through constitutional amendment. And that will neuter the Supreme Court in anything that they will say moving forward. But the problem will be, can you get 30 some odd state legislatures or something out of an Article 5 convention passed that would garner that kind of support to change the document? Absent that, there will be nothing said at the national level, and this, and rightly so, based on this opinion, and it will be decided at the state level. So our state courts our state appellate judges, our state Supreme Court judges should be, whether you are pro-life or pro-choice or pro-abortion or whatever people want to call it, that should be your focus. So um, to your question then on the leak, now we're going to enter, <laughs> if it's okay, <laughs> um, a conspiracy realm or alternative theory realm, right? Because the fact of the matter is, I don't have it in front of me, this this decision that we have 
you know, leaked several months ago is basically the same decision minus some, you know, edits addressing issues that justices raised internally. Uh, this decision is fundamentally the same that was leaked. And I don't know when it was leaked a, a month ago or so. So who leaked it? Right. So is that where you're going? Like what, what, like to me, the number one question is, well, then who leaked it and what's being done about it? And to me, yeah, to me, in, in my mind, um, the fact that there, we don't know anything right now, when it seems to me this would be very easily discovered who did this based on what I understand and others is the process internally in the court to circulate these kinds of opinions, the limited group of people that have access to these kinds of opinions, the fact that you could trace people's activities on various computers. I mean, to me, knowing who did this specifically should be fairly easy to determine uh, or at least where it came from. Uh, and then figuring out who specifically did it could come from that. The fact that we don't know leads me to believe that this could be an orchestrated leak from very high levels within the court that certain people do not want exposed for institutional concerns. That could be a justice themselves or an IT person or a very senior legis- uh, judicial aide, protected class people. Because if this were uh, a Grundoon, a deplorable, or someone else of a regular nature that has no earthly connection or value to anyone inside of an institutional organization, they would be hung out to dry. Because what happened was next to... What happened with that leak is so unprecedented. Uh, yeah, I've heard of a Supreme Court opinion, uh, draft opinion being leaked before this. Right. And, and sorry to go off on a little filibuster there, but I felt I had to set a few things up for our discussion. Yeah. The, the, the big question here is why don't we know who leaked this? Because it seems to me it would be very easy to determine who did it. So then that leads me to believe that the person who did it was a very connected person. And, you know, I think I haven't seen latest polling data. I don't know that uh, this decision moved the needle any, uh, if much, on the red wave coming in November, but I think there needs to be, if the Supreme Court can't get this fixed, can't find the leaker, can't find, uh, you know, what justice's office this came from, then Congress needs to step in and do an investigation. Uh, we, well, we know the Biden DOJ and FBI won't go in there uh, but I'm just wondering what the what the legal steps are that the people's representatives can take, because this is a breach of a sacred institution. This, you know, opened up the door 
for the near assassination of Brett Kavanaugh. Right. This opened up the door to people protesting outside justices' homes, which is illegal. Nothing was really done about that outside of a couple arrests by local law enforcement, I think. And it left uh, open you know, the door to uh, an intimidation of Supreme Court justices. And I really, cons- we're, again, we're in conspiracy territory, but I think, you know, the Democrats wouldn't mind it if one of these justices was mur- was murdered uh, or something, you know, something happened to them where they couldn't serve on the court. So that way Biden could appoint another liberal, uh, probably unqualified justice to the Supreme Court. Uh, and, you know, you were right earlier. This was decided in the within the bounds of law, not within the bonds of morality and what is more and what is not. But the leak has to be addressed and some swift and severe punishment has to be handed down if this came from uh, the three Democrat justices uh, or just uh, an I, maybe you, like you said, an IT person that was like, well, fuck this. Uh, this is, I, I'm pro, I'm pro choice. I'm going to leak this to the media. Uh, you know, any number of old law clerk. I mean, who knows? Yeah, uh, it could be, it could be that too, you know, well, but we've got to sh- out. Let me- let me say this to what you've said. I think, you know, there, there's some of what you've said there that I am I, I'm with. There's there's some that I would, you know, concur with, but would object to the approach. Um, you know, so number one, I mean, clearly, um, if a justice of the Supreme Court was assassinated, and there clearly was an assassination attempt on Justice Kavanaugh, um, Obviously, Joe Biden would appoint um, a replacement and the Democrats control the Senate, you know, nominally, but they control it and would be able to get a justice appointed um, more than likely. And that would have no bearing, though, on this decision because it had already been argued and decided, you know, assuming that everything was in place before the tragic event were to happen. So just on a, as I understand things on a, you know, if a tragic event like that were to have happened, you know, this decision would have already been, you know, determined. Um, so, but it would change the composition of the court. And, and clearly uh, through comments made by Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, uh, I saw on Twitter he believes that the Republicans stole two seats on the Supreme Court and that the decisions of the court, because of that, are illegitimate, especially the ones he disagrees with, and especially this one. Now, does that mean Ed Markey wants a justice assassinated? I'm not making that connection, but what I'm <laughs> saying is there's clearly an underlying belief in some uh, chamber of uh the left in this country that this court for various reasons is illegitimate. You know, it's illegitimate because Obama should have been able to appoint Merrick Garland. Uh, 
it's yeah, illegitimate because Trump should have never been able to appoint Coney Barrett after Ginsburg, and and probably illegitimate because a lot of these people still believe Trump illegitimately won the presidency under a a a, a, uh, a debunked uh, conspiracy theory of them or their own that Russia colluded to steal the election. So therefore, Gorsuch shouldn't have been, or uh, Kavanaugh shouldn't even be appointed. So yeah, I, I would say there's a lot of that out there, but I, I wouldn't suggest that anyone wants a a justice assassinated to accomplish those goals. I think that they're a little bit bitter the way things shook out. And why did this, and why did things shake out the way that they did? Well, because they didn't control the Senate. You know, they 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 didn't have a majority until well, they still don't have a majority, but they just happen to have. Um, the vice president able to, you know, administratively break these sorts of, you know, loggerheads, thanks to, by the way, the Constitution of the United States that sets that up. Right. Um, so, um, so I, I do want to say that. Um, I, w- I do want to put that out there. Uh, I, I don't believe Democrats want justices assassinated but I do believe that they feel that there are one, two, maybe even three that are illegitimate based on their political biases. Yeah. And all, all these Supreme court justices were appointed and approved uh, through legal means. Uh, You know, you can question the only one that's possibly up to question is uh, Gorsuch because Mitch McConnell, the only thing that guy's done that I agree with, uh, he held off Merrick Garland's uh, appointment because Obama was essentially a lame duck president at that point. Well, uh, well let's, let's talk about that. Did he hold up the appointment? No. What he, what he did was, you know, the Constitution is clear. The president makes a recommendation and the Senate advises and consents. And there was there was no consent. Now, people can say, well, you should have had a hearing. You should have had an up or down vote. To me, that's more of a powerful argument than the fact that Mitch McConnell somehow abridged his constitutional responsibilities. Because it says that the, that the Senate shall advise and consent to these appointments. Well, they advised and they did not consent. Should they have had hearings? Should they have had an up or down vote? Well, that to me, that's the argument. Not what is the, you know, the Twitter bait, the clickbait in the media. Oh, Mitch McConnell's this evil guy. He subverted the Constitution. No, he didn't. No. He didn't subvert it. He, he leveraged it uh, and, and you can't to me you can't argue that point but I think to your, your larger point um, yeah I mean I think Gorsuch you know if you looked at the Gorsuch situation um, this nomination was this vacancy was uh, held up for a year yeah, you know? yeah and and so what does that mean is that okay I mean well that, I mean there was nothing illegal about it. Let's just say that. There's nothing illegal about it. 
No, no, it was definitely not illegal. Uh, uh, and you're right. You know, he did follow the Constitution uh, in doing Mitch McConnell, that is, being he uh, did what he did constitutionally. They, they didn't uh, uphold the president's nomination. Uh, I mean, Robert and- Bork in October of 1987, uh, I think. You know, mm-hmm. he he got you know the, the the term getting borked. You know, mm-hmm. you can look that up. He got Shanghai. Um, this probably start. I mean, there were political appointments before that. Things got political, but that really started the the process of all these appointments going under uber scrutiny uh, and extra attention publicly. Um. One could argue that the Johnson and Nixon appointments of the late 60s probably, you know, made this political, but the Borg thing made it extra political and sensational. But in the Bork situation, the Democrat Senate did give him an up or down vote, and he lost it 58 to 42, a, a historic defeat. Um, mm. And so they advised and they did not consent. I mean, they went through the, so the question is, does advise and consent mean, you know, an up or down vote or we're just not going to consider it. So there are examples uh, that you could point to the McConnell thing or the board thing to say, well, I guess advise and consent can mean whatever the Senate ends up doing. Yeah, and, you know, the good thing about this, all of these decisions uh, that have come lately, uh, they're being decided constitutionally. What you just covered with the uh, the Bork and the uh, Mitch McConnell, Merrick Garland thing, you know, that those were all matters that were constitutionally decided. Mitch McConnell used the constitutional right to uh, advise, do nothing. To, yeah, to do nothing. So, and that was the Senate's advice is we're too late in Obama's yeah. term, I guess, to. Well, no, their, their, their advice was I mean, there was a political thing. You know, Mitch McConnell and Republicans were like, oh, you know, this happened in an election year. Uh, therefore, the precedent is we're not going to do anything. To me, that's all noise it doesn't to me it doesn't matter when it occurs you know if the senate doesn't want to take it up they don't have to take it up there's nothing the president can do to force them to take it up now the president could make a recess appointment if the senate were to adjourn if the congress were to adjourn the president could say well i'm going to appoint somebody until congress comes back but congress is always in session (laughs) so Recess appointments are kind of tough to make, and there are different cases and, you know, judicial interpretations of, out there about when Congress is actually in recess. But, um, yeah, I mean, th- that's how I see it. it, it <laughs> they, they, they don't have to do anything whenever it is. I mean, Donald Trump could have been a, a, inaugurated president on January 20th, 2017, which he was, and the very next day, 
a vacancy on any court could have occurred, and the Senate could just say, we're not taking it up. We're not going to deal with it. We, we're not going to, we're just not going to move it. And, and so how do you force them to move it? It's a, it's a plenarily, a plenarily, I'm not saying that right, but it's a, it's a direct right plenary. It is their responsibility. It is specifically delegated to the Senate. So no other branch, no other institution can tell them how to do it. It's their responsibility. And right. the only way that you could change that is through an election. Yeah. Speaking of elections, have you seen uh, any new polling data that indicates that this is is on the voters' minds, or is it the economy stupid? No, I don't think. I think anyone that that is under the illusion that. Dobbs or the abortion issue is going to change what is about to happen in November uh, to the Democrats is living in fantasy land. Um, you know, by this point in time and under the constraints of this horrible economy that is now in recession uh, with inflation, what it is, and all of the problems that this country is facing internationally. This is this is a no this is a non-starter. The polling data that I've seen indicates that um, mm-hmm. this isn't this isn't something that's going to you're 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 locked in at this point. Um, you know you're 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 not going. This is not going to be some grassroots groundswell on either side that's going to change the d- dynamic of. I mean, the the issues that will decide this election this November. We don't know what those will be. Maybe nothing more comes out. But as Rush Limbaugh is famously quoted as saying, the issues that will decide this election have not been determined yet. We don't know what that'll be. There could be something big. And, and this isn't it. Um, clearly, uh, for 70, 80% of the polling population, based off of the credible polls that I look at, uh, it's the economy. It's the price of goods, inflation. Um, it is those kinds of issues uh, that are motivating people, uh, even immigration, uh, COVID, abortion. Those things are incredibly low. And clearly the Democrats are trying to make these issues more important because they feel that there is a political advantage. But it, it's very tough to make somebody care about uh, Supreme Court decision when it's costing them six dollars a gallon uh, in gasoline, when it's costing them a hundred dollars to fill up their tank, when it's costing them a full day's wages to 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 fill their car up just to get to work every two weeks. Right. I mean, you know, there's no baby formula. There's a, a disjointedness. I mean, Joe Biden was elected. Um, be nice about it. He, he assumed office uh, under the belief by a lot of people that he would return things to normal, that things would calm down, that there wouldn't be a drastic change, that he would just steady the ship until the next election, and then we can determine the direction of the country. Uh, he has decided, or, you know, in my view, the 
fact that I think he's incapable of making significant decisions based on his mental acuity. His people have decided um, that they're going to go all in on radical change and radical this. That's not reflected in the polls. That was never there. A lot of people hated Donald Trump because he was a jerk. And I think there's a, some points to be made there, but they liked the results of him being a jerk. They just wanted someone else, you know, Hey, we like what you did. You're an idiot. Um, so we're going to put someone else in to not rock the boat and then we'll figure it out. Well, that hasn't happened. And so that's why a guy is falling like he is in the polls. Uh, it's, it's unprecedented how far he has fallen in the polls. It's unprecedented how low he is uh, at this point. And, when uh the abortion and january 6th i mean the only people that care about january 6th are folks that could afford six dollars a gallon gas and don't want trump to win in 2024 that's the only people who care about january 6th i mean that committee's a joke uh people are lying there's no cross-examination there's no due process there's nothing uh abortion is what it is it's not a new issue people have made up their minds it is no it no longer motivates people one way or the other um like it used to but what does motivate people what has always motivated people and what will always motivate people is the economy their lot in life how they are being treated uh and joe biden and the democrats have a big league problem well yeah and they have to one drum up this january 6 nonsense and try, they're trying to keep Republicans off the ballot, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Lauren Boebert, and about 150 House members uh, claiming there was a grand conspiracy with Trump on January 6th. And now they are telling their constituent, well, sort of constituents, go to the polls and vote based on abortion because they have nothing to run on. All of their brilliant Green New Deal ideas uh, and everything, their ideas on taxes, they're rejecting this. Yeah, their whole yeah. agenda is hurting the country, and people see that now. And they're like, oh, shit, maybe the, you know, the asshole wasn't such an asshole, speaking of Trump. Right. And, and, and really what it was is we never wanted this and we thought this guy wouldn't give us this. We thought he would be strong enough to stand up to this and give us some peace of mind in the process. Right. And that hasn't happened because he's weak. He's feeble. He's incapable of managing this mess. And and so he's had to embrace these radical positions that the country has never been for. Now, I will say this, though, uh, you know, in an attempt to be fair here, the Republicans could easily screw this up. And I think they're well on their way to screwing this up. I think if, if there was a Newt Gingrich kind of leader in Congress who had a populist uh, understanding of where the country was and the new Republican base we would probably see 250, 260 seats in the House and easily 55 to 57 seats in the Senate. But because the 
establishment Republicans in Washington don't get it or don't want to get it or can't get it. Um, you know, they did this infrastructure deal earlier last year that they should have never done that's contributing to the inflation. Biden himself passed uh, another COVID package, which didn't help. That wasn't so much a Republican thing. But they've now done a gun bill. Right. That, that you know, it, it, in all honesty, doesn't do a whole lot. As a matter of fact, functionally, I think it's more in line with conservatives, especially with, you know, you know, the option to federally fund arming teachers and people in school to prevent these idiots from doing what they're doing. But there is that red flag provision in there that provides federal funding for states that want to institute these laws. But it should have never happened. What I'm here, but that's going to upset people. The Supreme Court gun case that we may or may not get to, um, I think, blunts that a little bit. But what is going to be a big problem is the rumors that I'm hearing is that Senator Tillis from North Carolina and Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois are trying to craft a immigration compromise. And you know what that means, amnesty, uh, in the wake of this Uvalde tragedy that happened, in the wake of, uh, I'm sorry, not Uvalde, but uh, in the wake of this tragedy that happened at the southern border where 40 uh, immigrants were found cooked in the back of a trailer. Yeah, it's a horrible, horrible situation, and God be with all of their souls and their family. It's a horrible way to go. Um, they're trying to come up with now. If that happens, you know, I have a a thesis here, and we can maybe get into conspiracy land a little bit. But to me, it, it comes down to you know, do the Republicans in charge really want to win and win big, or win at all? Do they want to win big or do they want to win at all? Because how do you sign on to an infrastructure deal that Republican base doesn't support, which is just a handout? How do you sign on to this crazy gun deal that isn't going to solve any problems? We all know what the problem is. We just don't want to talk about it. And, and if this amnesty bill comes out, how do you do that? I mean, it's almost like they're taking... 260 seats and saying, well, we just want 230. We're taking 57 Senate seats and, well, we only need 51. Right. And why do they feel that way? I have some suspicions, but I do not understand um, why uh, the Republicans are making some of these deals the way that they are. Yeah, but in in the year where we should be swinging for the fences, we're trying to bunt. It seems like, uh, <clears throat> and I, that's why you know I'm glad that Trump is out doing rallies for people that support the the new ideas of the Republican Party and the traditions and the base of the Republican Party. Uh, <clears throat> You know, he's only lost, what, what, like one or two primaries? I mean, if you want to credit him for the people that he supports winning, I mean, it's unheard of that 
the influence this guy has over the Republican base. Well, uh, where's and, our ideas? You right. know, in, in 1994, we had Newt Gingrich in a contract with America by this point. The American people mm-hmm. knew what the alternative was and what we were going to do, and they embraced it in a, in a huge electoral mandate. In 2010, you had the Tea Party. There was less of a cohesive national agenda from Washington, but there was certainly a pushback. There's nothing now. And I think that's by design. There's no new ideas. What, what the Republicans seem to be positioning themselves in Washington is just give us the majority. We're not going to tell you what, what we're going to do with it. And so there's a lot of people that are going to be we're voting Republican. Because they think certain things are going to happen and they're going to be sorely disappointed. And it's going to cause a lot of issues uh, for the Republic. I mean, the Democrats have their own issues, right? I mean, their base has been completely sold out. Um, the Republican base thinks they haven't been sold out yet. But where's the – I would demand Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell lay out their agenda for the next two years because – what I think the base of the party wants and what they want to do are 180 apart. You know, what, what, what the base wants to do is to hold this, in their view, illegitimate administration accountable for and, and investigate things and oversight. And I think what McCarthy and McConnell want to do is just jockey in position. And mm-hmm. and play and play and play the game that Boehner and McConnell played against Obama, you know. Right. Yeah, Boehner make that de- real well. Yeah, make a deal, write it out to the next election, and see what happens. Is there a way that we can get Mitch McConnell out of that leadership spot when the Republicans take back the Senate? Well, let's talk about that. So what we do know is that in this uh, most recent gun bill, there were, I don't know, 10 or 15 Republicans that jumped ship, quote unquote. And a lot of these guys are not, are, are either retiring or are not facing uh, the electorate next year or this year um you you know uh what is it like cruz or whatever or not cruz but you know portman in ohio is not um he's retiring i hope jd vance will win that one uh right right um so, so I guess I think uh, in in this situation, um, you can see who those fifteen or so problematic uh, Republicans are. They are clearly uh, Mitch McConnell supporters. 
So now you go and you look at, well, let's look at Ohio. Uh, J.D. Vance clearly didn't campaign on a Mitch McConnell platform. Eric Greitens in Missouri is clearly not a Mitch McConnell person. Uh, the guy in Arizona and others, you know, from what I can tell, without getting into a lot of detail, but you could, you know, check what I'm saying at realclearpolitics.com. Looks like there could be a dozen or so uh, Republicans coming in this fall that would not support what Mitch McConnell wants to do. In addition to a number, uh, half a dozen or so, if not more that are currently there. So how do you get rid of Mitch McConnell? He's not up for election. Unfortunately, the senators are not appointed by the state legislatures anymore and haven't been for over a hundred years. So he can't be recalled. Um, you're just going to have to deal with them and you're going to have to elect people in your state uh, and in your primary, uh, first of all, that have made a commitment to not support the agenda that he's promoting. And so when the, when, when, the, when the dust settles in November and people show up, you know, th this is the thing. And this is a key point that I would like to make with people that follow like Steve Bannon and uh, other folks. It isn't getting, it isn't just getting people elected in a primary or in a general that you support. It's actually making sure that after the election for that four to six week period where they are wined and dined by special interests and consultants, lobbyists, whatever, not to sell out. Matter of fact, it's probably best just don't pick up the phone because that's when they become corrupted. Mm -hmm. and, well, corrupted might be a strong word, uh, but influenced. How about that? Some are corrupted, but uh, influence. Uh, and, they, go, they go to Washington to change things, and Washington changes them. And Washington and changes them. Period, you're saying. Yeah. And so that's really the focus point, is if we're going to have this wave, like we did in 2010, uh, of this Tea Party movement, you know, 80 people get to Washington that are newly elected in the House and Senate. Well, in two years, there's only... 30 of them that are worth a damn well there's the deep state there's the swamp right and so that should be the focus here so if you want to get rid of mcconnell you got to pick the right if, if that's your goal uh, you got to pick the right person in the primary get them elected in november and then make sure they don't fold in that six to eight week period between the election and their inauguration where they are typically influenced yeah so let's uh switch gears here towards the end the decision on the new york state gun bill uh clarence thomas again gave a very good opinion that one the right to bear arms is a guaranteed constitutional right and the states cannot make you 
give them a special reason as to why you need to carry a firearm. The reason you need to carry a gun. They can't say, uh, well, what is your reason for this? And in all places, uh, New York especially, the reasons should be spelled out pretty clear. Uh, it's uh, one of the toughest gun states in America, and yet they have some of the highest you know, gun death rates. Anywhere that there's a, quote, gun-free zone has a very high gun death rate, opposed to places where people are allowed to carry open or conceal and carry. Uh, so this decision by the Supreme Court, I felt, gave constitutional carry to every American. What are your thoughts? Well, let's break this down a little bit. Um, generally speaking, the Heller case made um, the right to personal protection uh within the home a constitutional right and the new york case made it a constitutional right outside of the home okay so what we're what we're talking about here is basically the establishment of the court of the second amendment as a fundamental right uh the right to protect yourself the right to bear arms uh historically speaking our founding fathers looked at this as as the ability to brandish weapons that would not induce public panic, but protect people's persons and property, papers and property. Uh, it is it is something that our founders, uh, you know, wanted. The, you know, back in the day, there wasn't a standing army. Actually, the government had to petition the people um, to um, take up arms. To join the militia and take up, they already had the arms, but to, to join the militia. Uh, and so, you know, there, there's just a lot of historical context that I think goes unappreciated in this country when we talk about uh, how important it is for the individual to be able to possess uh, weapons, whether it's firearms or bows and arrows or whatever, for their protection. Uh, this was a revolutionary idea, uh, very radical when it happened at the time. Uh, there, there, you know, in English common law, there was a belief, you know, in, in terms of being able to carry a weapon. And that weapon was commonly a sword in, in those days, long time ago, that only a gentleman could do that, that only a, an authorized person could have that ability. And the, so therefore the rest of us, deplorables were not um you know afforded that right and we said no that is actually the average ordinary person the farmer the textile worker uh, whatever we have the right to protect ourselves we don't have you know we don't have to be whatever and so uh largely this issue has not been addressed by the court uh but in recent time it has and the question is you know beyond is it a fundamental right you know when can it be regulated so this isn't necessarily a question of who decides it's how 
And so, you know, reading from the syllabus of the court, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, v. Uh, Buren, superintendent of New York State Police, the issue before the court argued in November 2021 was the state of New York makes it a crime to possess a firearm, whether inside or outside the home. An individual who wants to carry a firearm outside his home may obtain an unrestricted license to, quote, have and carry, unquote, a concealed pistol or revolver if he can prove that proper cause exists for doing so. An applicant satisfies that proper clause requirement only if he can demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community. So this is a heightened standard. And uh, the petitioners, the people that brought this case before the court, uh, were adult law-abiding New York residents who both applied for these unrestricted licenses to carry a handgun in public based on their generalized interest in self-defense. The state denied their applications for unrestricted licenses, allegedly because the individuals failed to satisfy the proper clause requirement, which was more of a specific, um, you know, threat determined uh, uh, request to have a gun, not just their generalized interest in it of self-defense. Uh, The petitioners, uh, those challenging this law in New York, sued respondents, state officials who oversee the processing of licensing applications for declaratory and injunctive relief, alleging that respondents violated their Second and Fourteenth Amendment rights by denying their unrestricted license applications for failure to demonstrate a unique need for self-defense. The district court dismissed the petitioner's complaint and the court of appeals affirmed it, meaning the people saying my rights have been infringed were again, lost at all levels. Both courts relied on the second circuit's prior decision in uh, Catchley v. County of Westchester, which uh, had sustained New York's proper clause standard holding that the requirement was quote, substantially related to the achievement of an important government interest, meaning that it was within the government's interest to say only certain people with certain special cases could uh, obtain this kind of permit, that the government had the right to, uh, you know, there were certain, uh, you know, civil protection issues that, you know, were in play here, not your uh, just general interest in self-defense. And so the court, though, held that New York's proper clause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising to keep and bear arms in public for self-defense. So Heller said in private, this decision says in public. And so that is, among other things, a very important thing to consider. We now have a right, both in private and in public, to 
bear arms for our legitimate, you know, held belief of, you know, protecting ourselves, our papers and our family. In, you know, and in today's world, and I know Democrats don't use common sense, but my special reason, if I lived in New York, my special reason for wanting to carry a concealed weapon would be I live in New York. <laughs> I mean, it, it's almost lawless, especially in New York City. Uh, and I, I don't see how they can, you know, they like to use the word, well, it's not fair in different circumstances. Okay. We're talking about what's fair. How is it fair that Howard Stern has said that he carries a concealed weapon? He can afford the permits and all those things. But yet me walking down the same streets with the same mafias and gangs and so on cannot protect myself. Well, I think it gets to it in that uh, uh, Second Circuit case that both the District Court and the Court of Appeals in New York relied on, that there was an important government interest. For someone like Howard Stern or a celebrity, while maybe they themselves were not carrying the gun, their security was carrying the gun, that that was okay that the government interest there wasn't just random people wanting to carry guns. It was organized. It was, you know, regulated, restricted. The question is, do you and I as individuals have the right to say, I want a gun for whatever reason we want to have it. And the court said, yes. (laughs) whether it's inside or outside of the house and i'm glad they said yes because the the, i don't know what the hell is going on but with these mass shootings becoming more and more frequent in fact in 2021 biden's first year they doubled uh in number depending on how you define a mass shooting but you know if i'm at Walmart or I'm at my school and I'm doing, you know, my job, wherever that is. And someone pulls a gun on me or somebody is ready to commit mass murder. I can stop that from happening and save lives because I'm carrying a gun. Now I can save other people's lives as well as my own. And this is something that Democrats and, you know, the liberals refuse to recognize. You know, one armed citizen could save dozens of lives. You know, yeah, the first, at that Buffalo supermarket, they said, well, uh, there was a security guard there who was armed. And yeah, no shit. If I'm a, a crazy person, and I'm going to take out uh, a bunch of people at a score, a supermarket. The first person I'm going to attack is going to be the security guard. And now I got free reign. If you take that free reign away because you have 10 <coughs> people in that supermarket with guns, 
you don't have a mass shooter anymore. He's dead. You know, we're told, well, we got to wait for the police uh, and this and that. A police department with a good response time of, let's say, two minutes because it's a town and they can get a <laughs> two minutes uh, can kill a lot of people. You know, most mass shootings only last a few minutes to begin with. And a lot, you're losing 10, 15, 20 some lives at a time in these things. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to not have good law-abiding people allowed to carry a gun for defense of themselves and for the people around them. Well, it's logical sense. It's clearly what our founders felt was so important that they made this the Second Amendment, you know, the right uh, uh, to keep and bear arms um, shall not be infringed or, you know, I mean, it's whatever the wording is and the wording is important, but the concept here is we have a natural right to defend ourselves. And um, the second amendment is pretty clear on that. I mean, we talked about the Dobbs case earlier which is was was as I see it a bit more ambiguous, this right to an abortion, this right to privacy. So they said, let the states figure this out. Well, in this particular instance, the it says it right here. Uh, the second, you know, um, the Fourteenth Amendment uh, allows law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs to exercise a Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms for, in public for self-defense. I mean, that's what the court held here. Um, and, and I don't know what the problem is. I mean, I don't know what, I mean, it is, it is in plain text. It is in plain sight. It has been determined. Um, and I think there are just a lot of people that, you know, just don't trust the judgment of the average ordinary American and cloud it with uh, media sensationalism of morons that have a, you know, a, a deranged, you know, agenda to, to shoot people up. Uh, frankly, if I, if I was in a situation, uh, in a, you know, I would, I would hope I mean, I'll just say for full transparency, I don't like guns. You know, I don't know how to use them. I don't know how to care for them. I don't know how to shoot them. I just don't like them. But that doesn't mean that I don't think that we have a, a right to uh, keep and bear arms. I clearly believe that. Um, it's, you know, maybe I need to up my game here a little bit and become a little bit more of a man and learn how to handle a firearm and, and responsibly uh, in order to protect myself and my family. I don't know. Uh, bottom line is, regardless of whether that happens, the, the right exists and it's, it's, it's right there in the second amendment. You can see it and understanding how things were at the time that it was written and the fact that nothing has changed with it since means what the court um, said it means in uh, New York uh, gun case. Yeah, and Clarence Thomas, you know, said that no other amendment gets 
the special scrutiny or the special exceptions, as I would put it, as the Second Amendment does. Second Amendment it seems to be the only amendment that people say, well, wait a minute. This, this meant, you know, a musket and a ball and, a, you know, packing gunpowder in and then you pack a little ball into the end of the barrel. And no, <clears throat> one thing, there were other weapons available at that time. Two, like you said, the people are the militia. We still are the militia. That doesn't change. You know, we have the right to, if the government calls on us, to protect our country. And furthermore, if we are called upon ourselves to protect our person or our property, we have a right to do that constitutionally. Right. And yeah. this is where people don't understand these two cases and some of these dumbasses are Congress people. <laughs> they are saying, well, how does the Supreme Court say uh, this is a right of the state and this is a right of the Constitution? What? What's no, duh, it says in the Constitution. It's right there. It's in plain language. Yeah. It, you know, anything not I'm just going to say specifically de dedicated to the federal government is up to the states to legislate. Yeah, 10th Amendment. If the power is not uh, delegated to the, to the federal government or nor denied to the states, it is reserved to the states or to the people. I mean, it's... And that's, know, where also, you get to, yeah. that's where you get your overturning of Roe v. Wade. Well, and that and other... Yeah, that and other it, the issues. Well, I mean, look, um, you're right. And I agree with you. Um but Justice Thomas is a special uh, justice on the Supreme Court. This guy has a hell of a history. Uh, agree with him or disagree with him, you know, in his judicial philosophy. This guy's got a hell of a history, you know, brought himself up from literal squalor um, to go to Yale Law School and become a, a very influential person. Uh, so I enjoy his, his decisions on the court. Just a little snippet from this, because he he delivered the opinion of the court in this case. So it's very important to understand, and I can't read all to us here because it's very large, 135 pages, but you could look it up. You know, let me just emphasize here. You have in your human agency the ability to look these cases up and read them for yourself. Read all the supporting documents. Read the individual parties and the people supporting both sides. This is not something that is reserved for people with college degrees or law degrees or licensed attorneys. You can access this and read it for yourself and educate yourself. You've got that power. This is your government. Uh, you own it. So I, I, I would just encourage people to look these things up. Give yourself an hour or so just to look stuff up. Not media reports, but primary source. Look at, right. look at the documents that actually control these decisions. And decide for yourself whether you agree with it or disagree with it. And then make your arguments one way or the other. But Clarence Thomas said in this decision, in this one paragraph, 
in District of Columbia v. Heller and McDonald v. Chicago, we recognize that the Second and Fourteenth Amendments protect the right of an ordinary, law-abiding citizen to possess a handgun in the home for self-defense, in the home. In this case, petitioners and respondents agree that ordinary law-abiding citizens have a similar right to carry handguns publicly for their self-defense. We too agree and now hold, consistent with Heller and McDonald, that the Second and Fourteenth Amendments protect an individual's right to carry a handgun for self-defense outside the home. The parties nevertheless dispute whether New York's licensing regime respects the constitutional right to carry handguns for publicly handguns publicly for self-defense. In 43 states, the government issues licenses to carry based on objective criteria. But in six states, including New York, the government further conditions issuance of a license to carry on a citizen's showing of some additional special need. Because the state of New York issues public carry licenses only when an applicant demonstrates a special need for self-defense, we conclude that the state's licensing regime violates the Constitution. So what's clearly important here is that in the eyes of Justice Thomas and the majority of the court and the arguments presented to them, everyone agrees that Ordinary, law-abiding citizens have a right to carry handguns publicly for their self-defense. The question is, do states and their licensing regimes respect a constitutional right to carry handguns publicly for self-defense based on this, you know, It's not a question of, do you have the right to do this? Yes. But how do you achieve that right? What hoops do you have to go through to achieve that right? And the court is saying New York made too many barriers for people to exercise this right that everyone agrees that we have. And of course, you know, I'll leave it up to everyone else to read the rest of this opinion. But that's the question. The court said, you, we, We have this right for self-defense. You cannot make it difficult on people. You cannot, I mean, you can't screw with people. You can't F with people. You know, it's here. And I would argue, they have now said, it's fundamental. And that's very important. We have the right to protect ourselves. Whether or not you choose to do so with a gun or whatever, we have a right to protect ourselves as we see fit. Absolutely. Well, I think that does it. You want to plug where people can find you on uh, social media and podcast? Well, you know, I don't uh, do a podcast so much anymore um, as much as I'd like, but um you know, every now and again, I will rant on social mm-hmm. media uh, at the Breakwall 37, Getter, Twitter, and Truth Social. Um, but honestly, the best place to hear me 
and my opinions will be on this broadcast with your your qualified and capable host. And we'll have to do this more often, but it's been a good conversation. Uh, and always, you can find me on Getter and Twitter also at the real underscore Big John. And you better get on Truth Social, Big John. That, as soon as it's available for Android, I haven't found it in my app store yet, but as soon as I get there, I'll get there. Uh, so, as always, God bless America, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Doc. Anytime, brother.